Hello and welcome at Book Lovers Companion. My name is Edith and again the microphone next to me is abandoned. The teacup is doing tea things again. The CEO is enjoying another horizontal life pause. Well, who would have thought, right? But here with me is scientist and author Jeffrey Gardner. Hello Jeffrey and welcome at Book Lovers Companion. Hello and thank you very much for the chance to talk about my book. Oh, it is wonderful to have you on the show. And it is a fascinating story, a fascinating tale you have been weaving for your readers. The book is called The Path from Regret, and it was published in May 2023. That's correct. Yeah, oh. not not quite six, eight months ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's seen, the time has gone by extremely fast. Oh, well, tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> Every time a, a memory pops up on, on Facebook, I think, oh, is it really a year, two years? Well, yeah, time flies. <laughs> exactly, what can yeah. I say? <laughs> uh, your book, I said you are a scientist, but this book is fantasy. One does not exclude yes. the other, of course. And what can you tell our readers about your book? As much or sure. as little as you like? Absolutely. So I'll I'll, I'll give uh, folks the the one sentence kind of log line uh, summary, and then I'll expand out that on that a little bit. Uh, so if I had to encapsulate the the novel in a single sentence, I would say a powerful but despondent wizard tries to erase his memories while racing to stop an old rival from upsetting the balance of power between the ruling princes of the continent and powerful merchant guilds. So with that, there's kind of an external conflict and an internal conflict. And so that's kind of how I I visualize the story. The external conflict is this idea that the main character is a wizard and he's part of a wizard's collective. And a member of this wizard's collective has gone missing, has disappeared. And the one of the protagonists of the story, his name is Thorn. He is tasked to go track down and find why this wizard, this member of the collective, is missing. What happened to them? So a large portion of the story is part detective uh, work and part chase. Why is this person missing? What did they do? Who took them and for what reason? And what's troubling to to Thorne is he finds out fairly early on that the wizard that disappeared, people he knows took them. So other members of the collective, so rivals of, of his. And so then he's wondering why are members of his own collective doing this and what is their true purpose? And then you find it a little bit later on that these conspirators are actually trying to upset the balance of power on the continent and on the continent there's three entities that really drive the uh economy and commerce and and innovation forward and so one of them is the ruling class of princes and so Mm -hmm. there's a number of provinces on the continent and each province has a prince that controls the military Mm -hmm. then there are the merchant guilds and those are all interconnected across the continents and they control the commerce and the communication so they're very powerful economically and then there is the the, the mages uh, collective, which in the book is called the, the archive. And so each continent has an archive, and that is where the magical research and the magical innovation takes place. So it's this tripod where all three members try to uh, jostle for power. And 
what Thorne finds out is that these conspirators are trying to upend that tripod. So that's kind of the external conflict of the story. The internal goes into why is Thorne despondent? Why has he lost hope? Mm. Why is he so ground down with, with life? And why does he actually want to erase his memories? And so this was interesting to me because I think all of us can think of a situation where we've got a memory in our past, something we've said or done or we're laying awake at two or three in the morning and you think back to when you were an adolescent or a young adult and you put your foot in your mouth or you did something that hurt someone else that yeah. you really regret. And you say, boy, I, I, I wish I could either go back in time and fix it or maybe soften the sharp edges of that memory. Well, in Thorne's case, he's got memories that he despises so much. He wants to expunge them. He wants to erase them completely. So you learn a little bit about why does he want to erase his memories? And because he's a wizard and he knows powerful, magical people, how is he going to do that? And so kind of the internal conflict of the story is as he's going through this chase and trying to find this missing wizard and stop this conspiracy, deciding do do I really want to erase my own memories? Do I really want to get rid of these things that provide some uniqueness to me, but also might be potentially holding me back from greater works of magic, greater potential? So those are the kind of the two things that are playing in the book in terms of external versus internal conflict. And kind of if I had to describe what are the themes of the story uh, from that description, maybe you can tease apart the major themes of the book are memory, time and regret. Mm, and how to cope with your regrets? Yes. So how to, how do you manage your regrets or the things that you wish you would have done differently? And so that actually ties in to the second point of view character. So the, the story is told from the perspective of two people. Mm -hmm. One is Thorne, who is a, a wizard, who is, you know, middle, middle age or so, forties, mm. fifties. And then the second point of view character uh, is a, Uh, disgraced knight whose name is Carleon. So he is a much younger man in his very, very early 20s. And he was uh, a knight, which is a prestigious military profession in the story. But he did something that got him cashiered, got him kicked out of the military, a dishonorable discharge. And now he's essentially living hand to mouth as a mercenary. And you, you, you learn from Carlin very early on. He's, you, you first meet him. He's going to a money lender and he's making some sort of payment mm -hmm. and you don't know what he's paying off only yeah. that he's reluctant to do it, but he keeps doing it out of this sense of duty. And so you have, mm -hmm. so throughout the story, you find out why is he making these payments? And more importantly, why was he kicked out of the, the military and why he's, not doing a very good job of trying to fix his life or improve his life. And so another, I guess, kind of undercurrent of the story is how you solve problems or how mm. you perceive the world when you are older and maybe mm. a little bit more mature and perhaps the world has ground you down a little bit compared to when you are younger and have a little bit more energy or vigor or maybe aggressiveness is not the right word, but much more take charge and I will fix things myself and not ask for help. Uh, perspective. And so when Thorne and Kryon are tasked to work together, uh, because again, as a mercenary, uh, Kryon needs money, Thorne is going to need help to track down this missing wizard. So Thorne hires Kryon and a couple other mercenaries to help him in his search. And so the personality conflicts of the story is when you have this younger, more aggressive person and this older, 
uh, more kind of world worry person trying to solve a similar problem, they they clash at times in terms of this is the best way to move forward. So the perspective of uh, younger folks and, and older folks is one of the ways that I wanted to explore because I, I one of the things that I like to think about is how I perceive the world now that I'm in middle age, I've got a young family, how I think about things is very, very different than when I started my writing journey back when I was a very, very young man and how I thought about things and the types of stories and the tropes and the things that I thought were interesting in my teens and early twenties is very different than the, the tropes and the things that I think are interesting now that I'm in my, my mid forties. Mm. Interesting that you say that. I think we tend to see everything in black and white when we are younger and realize when we become middle-aged yeah, uh, that there's a lot of gray in the world. And what I found most interesting or intriguing now that you mentioned this, this um, dynamic old, older person, younger person, um, their outlook on memories, because you said memory is a very important, important part uh, of Thorne's story, but also of the soldier. And he accuses him when they talk about memories and uh, would you get rid of your memories, the bad ones. And interestingly enough, the soldier said, no, I wouldn't because they make me who I am. And Thorne more or less accuses him of giving, so to speak, just the philosophical answer. But I think I think uh, the soldier is is correct because, like he said, the past or the memories or the things we did wrong or did we do right, they make us who we are. And should we really get rid of them because hopefully we have learned from them? Absolutely, and and I I like that you you picked that up because that's really one of the core scenes or conversations that I wanted people to think maybe just a little bit about what would they say to that question? Because again, everyone's late awake in the middle of the night thinking, boy, I said something that hurt someone else or was foolish or made me look silly, or I did this thing that was embarrassing. I wish I could take it back. And a lot of times they think, well, if I could take it back and change it so that I'm the hero or something better happens. And I think that contemplation is really important, you know, so if that a situation arises again, or if you talk to a family member or a friend that's going through something similar, the advice you could impart might be uh, improving of their their outcome. And so part of the the story is trying to figure out, okay, what memories are so bad for Thorne that he actually wants to oh. get rid of them? And, and what does that say about him as a person that he wants to get rid of some of that individuality? Uh, so the I, I I try hard to write it that it's not a there's not a moral judgment so there's not like a, a meta story yeah. saying what he's doing is bad or what he's doing is is good just more this is what he wants to do and trying to force that bit of thinking on the reader's part by having this conversation between Carleon and Thorn saying what would you do in this situation and then maybe the reader can can mm -hmm. think of similar things because hopefully at that point they're either really agreeing with one or the other. So my, my goal is hopefully that you had a strong opinion one way or the other. So uh, if I did my job correctly, you would say Thorne is right or Thor is wrong, Carleon's right or Carleon's wrong. And there would be no ambivalence like, eh, it doesn't matter. Hopefully readers are not that ambivalent. Hopefully they actually have a fairly strong stance of which one they want. But I tried very hard to not uh, preach which one is the correct answer. Oh, the reader should, uh, readers should make up their own mind. Yes. 
Exactly. And, uh, given Thorn's story, life story, uh, I got the idea that he's also a thorn in the side of his guild, isn't he? Yes. So, so <laughs> Thorn is that name is, I guess, metaphor in several senses. And so, hopefully, by the the end of the story, you understand why why he he adopted that name. That is not his given mm. name. Uh, and so, why he took that name. And he, Thorn is symbolic in several reasons, and, and, and not the least of which is exactly right, that he is uh, a troublemaker or, or, or a, a nonconformist <laughs> in a way uh, for his, his collective, the Mages Guild, for the, for the archive. So he has some special abilities that most wizards don't, mm -hmm. and so he has to be careful about not, not stepping too far out of line, but... He definitely feels that he wants to do things his way and he won't let history or convention necessarily stop him. So in a way, he actually has some very similar traits to the antagonist of the story uh, who has a much more extreme view, but something along those, those similar lines. But yeah, definitely trying to be having your own moral code or your own moral compass, well, I think was important for all the characters to have. And so in terms of writing characters that's one thing that I, I that i try hard to do and, and hopefully i succeed a little bit in that each character is unique with their own moral compass and so what do i mean, mean by that i'm trying to not have stock characters or tropes because mm -hmm. too often in science fiction and fantasy you get the uh stoic tough guy character or you get the yep. snarky smart guy character yeah. and so you can fall back very easily on those those tropes because they're familiar mm. and you kind of know what they're going to do because, okay, this, the stoic tough guy, he will take the bullet or the knife wound and won't complain, but we'll just keep soldiering on and really not show any emotion, which is kind of boring in my mm. opinion. True. And then the, the, the snarky smart guy, you know, he'll get shot or stabbed or, or, you know, or have some adversity and then just have quips to hide his pain yeah. or his vulnerability. Uh, so he puts this barrier or the separation between himself and others. And again, that trope is also very, familiar and mm. so what i wanted to do to do was have characters again very much in that that gray area that you were talking about not so much black and white but they do things that are morally consistent to them mm -hmm. and so i guess in thorn's case thorn does a lot of the white actions but for the wrong reasons and so there's a little discussion about that at one point in the story about they're arguing back and forth about you know what are they really gotten themselves into and the characters are, are saying well Thorns helped us in X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z manners. And then the counterpoint is, yeah, but he's broken A, B, and C rules to do it. So yeah. is that really okay? And again, I don't want the reader, I'm sorry, I don't want, as the writer, I don't want to uh, push an agenda. Mm -hmm. I want the reader to decide, well, do the ends justify the means or the rationalization? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to have some of those type of questions as you're reading through, hopefully some People are, are thinking about those things. I think they will. I did, of course. And I thought when I read your book, especially Thorn in his, on the one hand, okay, he has this mission and he does have a conscience. But on the under, other hand, as a reader, you get surprised by the way he handles things, like you said, what he does. It also surprises the soldier who should be used to things being done that way and yet at the same time he wonders oh he he the violence he uses or when he thinks of 
uh, reining in his violent um, um, streaks. Uh, I suppose the the soldier isn't used to them from from wizards like Thorn, and there is also a lot of prejudice between the factions. Uh, which was interesting, of course there would be, because you have different agendas, not you as a writer, but <laughs> the characters in your book, and that, that comes also to the forefront, and why do they have those prejudices, what have they been told, and now uh, they can see for themselves, uh, it's not everything as they have thought it is, and also between, what I also found interesting Fantasy is a lot about world building and it's, like you said, about characters. Uh, also the different so-called races that exist in your book and the different yes. abilities that they have. Can you yes. can you expand a little bit on that for us? Sure. So um, I, there's there's two two parts. There's kind of the the, the factions, kind of the, the the military and the the arcane practitioners. That's kind of one uh pocket and then there are the the races so uh, i can answer both but is there something that you think would be would be more interesting to explore mm. both actually but whichever you okay. prefer i mean i found the races okay. interesting and i would be interested to to know how you came up with those kind of differences okay. for example perfect so we'll we'll start with the the races first and so again this is uh high fantasy story so it's set on a secondary world that is not earth and magic is pervasive and there are non-human races or human adjacent races and so what do i mean by that the the prevalent race on the continent where the story takes place are humans and so you have every kind of flavor of, of human that you could imagine but then there are two um human adjacent races and so one of them is to to, I guess, be simple, it's the closest Tolkien equivalent to dwarves. And so the race uh, in the story, they are called the Venhadar. And so they are a shortened people. So they are short, broader shoulder, more muscular, longer lived. And so they are, again, they're not quite dwarves. But again, if, you, if you're describing someone who doesn't care about fantasy, you'd say they're, they're dwarf characters. And so yeah. that's one race. The second race is a, a feline race. They are they are cat people. So they look like a blending of cat and human. So they are bipedal. So they 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 walk and they, they look structurally kind of like humans, but they are covered mm -hmm. in a short fur. Mm -hmm. Their heads are much more cat-like than human-like, which means they have eyes with uh, vertical pupils mm -hmm. and they have their ears on the top of their, their head. And so, um, which can, can rotate and the fangs and the claws and, and, and uh, all of that stuff that would make them, you know, cat, hi, <laughs> cat human hybrids. And what's interesting uh, about uh, these, that particular race is that they have one inherent ability that the others do not. And that inherent ability, uh, I've termed uh, empathy, empathy mm. with a capital E. And that's a, essentially a type of ESP that can perceive emotional states. And so um, I guess the best equivalent for existing media is if you are a fan of Star Trek, the next generation, counselor Deanna Troy, she was a half beta Z uh, person, yeah. which means she couldn't read someone's mind, but she could perceive their emotional mm -hmm. state. Yeah. And that's a similar idea mm -hmm. in that the, the Sahenra race can sense if someone is anxious or nervous or 
agitated, happy, sad, and using that emotional state, they can kind of perceive what the person is thinking uh, or their intention for things. And so some uh, of the, the center race really try to not use that ability strongly because they feel it's it's kind of deceptive or manipulative. And then some use it, it freely because it helps move them across the world. And so one of the characters that Thorin interacts with, um, in, uh, starting in about maybe the first third of the book all the way through, uh, uh, a Sahenro character called Mitok. And so she is a, uh, a wizard as well, mm-hmm. and also one of these Sahenro cat people. And she's much more reserved in her using of this empathy. She uses it really when it, it's going to help the party and doesn't use it for really personal gain. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think, and, and all three races can have the ability to use magic. And so the, and so this is kind of a step adjacent from what you're asking, but we can maybe circle back to it. But there are two types of magic users in in the world. Those that are born with Mm -hmm. magical ability, which is actually quite rare. Mm -hmm. And then there are those that are made uh, wizards that actually choose to have their own mind unlocked to magical potential. So being a wizard, you are not a chosen one. You are not special. Mm -hmm. Anyone can choose to be a wizard if they want to, but there's a huge, huge cost to to do so. And there is, um, being a wizard is not awesome. And I guess maybe I'll leave it with that. And if we circle back to yeah. that idea of the magic system, we, we can. But um, in, in most stories, magic is this amazing, cool thing. Yeah. And being a wizard is, is super rad. And uh, people like the idea of magic users and wizards. And so I wanted to kind of flip that a little bit on its mm-hmm. head where, yeah, being a wizard is cool. You can do all this magical stuff. But the cost is very, very severe. And so it's not actually the best thing to be a wizard, at least in the, the story in the world that I've created. Magic comes with a price. And it's an extremely severe price. And so again, we think of, and again, not, not to, to name drop or drop cliches, but like things like Harry Potter, there's not a lot of cost to be able to use the magic. You've got your wand and you memorize the words yeah. and you do the thing. There's no trade-off. There's no cost. Yeah. Uh, and there are systems where if you expend your your magical energy you'll get tired or if you don't say the words or, or inflect with the, your hand gestures just right the spell will fail so you need mm-hmm. some practice and so those are kind of the common tropes yeah. to magic you need to have rest and uh practice and if you do that you're fine and so i didn't want to have any of that in my my story because again i think those are overused tropes and so what i really wanted was to have a really interesting take or something that's uncommon again i've seen this before but it's uncommon. And so mm-hmm. uh, the major crux of the magic system that, that I've created is that it is a chronic, persistent, and debilitating disease. And the longer that you are a magic user and the more you use the magic, the sicker you become, the more ill you become, and eventually it will kill you. To be a wizard is 100% a fatal outcome. And as you use more magic or as you stay a wizard longer you will lose your five senses so you will use mm-hmm. lose your sight your hearing your smell your taste your touch mm-hmm. your, your ability to perceive the world it degrades mm-hmm. and ultimately it will kill you and so at the start of the story that's already affecting thorn so at yeah. the very start of the story you learn very early on he cannot taste or smell so Eating food doesn't make him happy anymore. So the chattering teacup, you know, might be really upset <laughs> thinking about that because you can't, you can't taste the tea. 
anymore or mm. the flavors or the nuances anymore. Mm. That's gone. And so I wrote this story uh, before COVID happened, but as I was reading stories saying uh, with the taste and smell gone, mm. uh, as, as the COVID disease progressed, folks said everything tastes like styrofoam or I can't mm. taste anything anymore. And mealtime now is miserable. Mm. And so thinking that hopefully, you know, once you recover from COVID, that stuff comes back. But in the case of Thorne, it's gone forever. And then eventually he'll, his vision will start to go. His mm. hearing will start to go. He'll lose control of his muscles and ultimately it will kill him. So yeah. that idea of this ability to use magic to do incredible things, but it being fatal mm. and, and really damaging to a body, I think is an interesting thing to explore. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting to explore uh, because of those those made mages, the mages that or the wizards that decide they want to be magic users, the ones that mm -hmm. are born into magic, they have no choice. So that's kind of the sad class of wizard. They have no choice. That's their lot in life. And they have to manage it and control it as best they can and survive. Yeah. The ones that decide to become wizards, you have to ask the question, why? Yeah. How is their life so messed up? Hmm. that they decide, you know what, I'm going to be a magic user to be able to use magic, but knowing it's going to ultimately kill me. And it's not a, a, it's not a spoiler. We learned fairly early on that Thorne is one of these made mages. So he chose to do this to himself. How is his life so bad? What memories does he have that's so bad that he decides, hmm. I want to be a wizard, and is this a way that I can manage my memories, get rid of them, uh, give me some type of purpose so I can bury that mm. pain. Um, and so those are types of, of things that are explored a little bit uh, as well in as the story kind of progresses. Mm. And there also comes a dragon into it. The, yes. Oh, the dragons, <laughs> they are no longer that common in your world. They do exist, but they are they're faded into the background. Correct. And they also play a very vital part in the whole of being a magician, a wizard, yes. don't they? Yes. So, and so that stuff that I've sprinkled uh, ideas and concepts that I hope spark a reader's imagination because I don't talk about it in great detail, but enough that I think that a reader gets a sense of the deep history and connection between dragons and magic and wizards and that you are you're absolutely correct so the the, the dragons as a race are that fading might not be the the right word but but leaving so mm -hmm. they they have they were prevalent in the world and now they are extremely rare to the point where they're starting to transition into legend and and myth but there are still a few that exist as well as a couple magical creatures and so in the story, there is one particular dragon that uh, has a connection with Thor, and I don't want to talk too much about, yeah, yeah. about that. Um, um, but the connection between this dragon and uh, Thorn and their relationship is actually really important and has to feed directly into that idea of, of memory. And may I also ask, you, have an, you introduced an interesting concept also in your book. You call it the void. Uh, would it be would it be right to say it's a different realm of existence, a, a little bit or a tiny bit like a sort of parallel um, universe, sort of, but 
um, thing is, it's it's an int- interesting concept because religion as such doesn't play a role in those ideas of the wizards and so on. They are not, uh, how, how one puts it, uh, religiously affiliated. Correct. Yes. So that, and that actually really is interesting that maybe we can talk about later because the idea of magic and religion is actually the a major focus of uh, my second book that's going to be published in uh, 2024. So maybe at the end, yeah, we can yeah. circle back yeah, to that. But you're right. So for this particular book, there's not a lot of discussion of religion and mages are uh, agnostic, I guess, is, is a mm-hmm. way to say that they have no religious affiliation or religious beliefs. But this void place that takes a very prominent, it's a location that's very prominent in the story. And it's, it's you are correct, it's, it's extra dimensional or extra planar. It is, it is a place that mm-hmm. is separated and distinct from the world where the, the story takes place. And so to me, it is a place uh, of infinite possibility. It is mm-hmm. a place of energy. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that in this void, there is nothing Mm-hmm. until someone manifests something. And so by sheer force of will mm-hmm. or by by uh, skill in magic, what you want to happen or what you want to create is possible mm-hmm. in the void. And so this is very hard because it is a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that exist in the void that are mm-hmm. hostile to life, but you can create things that recreate the world you come from mm-hmm. or things that are wholly foreign and and what was uh, interesting for the void is that it, it gave me i guess so th- there's two th- there's the story reason why i wanted the void and then kind of the writer reason why i wanted the void the story reason why i wanted the void is because uh it gave me a mechanism to be able to move characters big points mm-hmm. in space and so you could think of it like a, a worm a wormhole yeah, so again okay, if you're yeah. thinking about deep space and the idea of a worm of a wormhole uh it is this this kind of pocket dimension where you can go into one area and pop out some yeah. very far away so it allows characters to uh transport yeah. and so the the these uh, portals allow you to go from mm-hmm. uh, continent to continent parts and so story-wise that's why i created it mechanistically as a writer why i like that idea is not only for the transport aspect of it but it gives me a big sandbox to Mm -hmm. uh focus on time Mm -hmm. and so again i can create places or locations or memories in that void because again the user or or, or the occupant of the void can create the space the way they want and so um one uh, throughout the the story i have intermission chapters, I guess I call them, which mm-hmm. are more, more recollections of the dragon character mm-hmm. and Thorne's interactions with the dragon character. And uh, a fair number of them uh, can t- take place in the void or Thorne is trying to recreate those locations mm-hmm. in the void because they're a handful of the good memories he actually has. So he's trying to draw back and create those pockets of time mm-hmm. and space where he was happy. Mm-hmm. And may I ask, since you are a scientist and we spoke about uh, writing uh, fantasy and so on and I said it's it's interesting that quite a lot of scientists who have their feet firmly planted uh, in evidence and so on um, enjoy writing fantasy and the chattering teacup said well I mean as a scientist you do need to have sometimes a vivid imagination we we always call them thinking outside the box. That's for one thing. 
And the other thing she said, and I absolutely agree with her, is people often think that our profession, our day job, is what defines us. Well, it's not, not entirely. So you have a life outside from being a scientist. And that's probably a fantasy for you. And I think it's most interesting uh, looking back in, in history when you think of, I don't know, Lewis Carroll or Tolkien. I mean, Carroll was a mathematician and Tolkien was a philologist, but still they are planted firmly in academia. They are researchers, hard evidence as a mathematician, you as a microbiologist, and you are used to thinking outside the box. Does that mean being a scientist is making it easier to build worlds and build characters than any other daytime profession? I'm not sure it makes it easier, but I, I think the reason that I really like fantasy, um, it's a nice, very contrast, as you, as you say, to my day job. So my, my day job, uh, I'm a university professor at a, a, a college on the East Coast, and it's very much, these are the, the parameters you have to work to. Uh, these are the, the kind of the scientific rules, and this is what you, you have, and you can't go outside of that because physics and chemistry uh, stop that. And so what I like about fantasy is that now those rules no longer apply. Mm. And that's the big thing for me is, is, is I like fantasy because I can take things that interest me. And that's why another aspect of the magic system I like is it's the bending of the rules of physics and chemistry. So you can, you know, break thermodynamics and make fire from nothing, <laughs> or you can freeze water at room temperature. So things that you can't really do or things that are really hard to do without you know, billions of dollars in huge equipment, you can do that now in, in fantasy. So you can take some ideas like, boy, wouldn't it be neat if I could do this thing, but I can't because science, but now I can over in, in fantasy. And so that's what I really like about that kind of contrast is, is all the things that I think, boy, it would be convenient if I could just <laughs> have this, I've got this beaker and I need to cool it down. Well, I have to put it in the fridge and now it's going to take 45 minutes. Boy, if I was a wizard and I could just go zoop, and now it's cold and I've just saved myself 45 minutes. I, that's that much more time. Yeah. I can do another experiment. I can accelerate my work. And so that's kind of, you know, again, flights of fantasy, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of what, where, where I come from. And I think you're absolutely right in that, you know, our, a lot of time, our job, uh, people associate your identity or your personality with your, your job. Um, but as you, as, as you are saying that the thing that pops into my mind, uh, is the Elton John song rocket man, where mm. he says all this science, I don't understand. It's just my job five days a week. And so, uh, <laughs> thankfully the science I do understand, but that idea of I've got my day job yeah. and I try to be good at it, yeah. but there's also another 16 hours of the day where I am many other things, right? So I am husband, I am a father, mm, I am an exactly. athlete, uh, I am a writer. And so all of those things make me me. And so in, in addition to not only of my past experiences and all of my memories make me who I am, the things I do now are all parts of that personality. And so when you try to look at someone and you say, oh, they are X, it's usually just one thing. Yep. Uh, but no one is that simple, right? <laughs> Everyone is multifaceted. Even you think that the most mundane, boring person they are not a single note. They've got mm. multiple things going on. You just might need to dig a little bit deeper to find that that stuff. And so, uh, for for me, I'm you know putting myself out there a little bit as as a writer and getting books published. You know, maybe challenging that idea of 
uh, the scientist is the person in the lab coat with the glasses and the beaker and you know that is their entire life and that's all they do um i know many scientists that are uh creative in, in some way so they're either musicians mm -hmm. or painters or uh creative writers and so um, the creative writers are, are uh, a fun group to talk to because technical writing is very specific mm -hmm. and it has to be done a very certain way and it yeah. all kind of looks the same. Yeah. Whereas creative writing, it can be uh, anything you can, can think of. And so that idea of having to switch your brain from technical writing to creative writing is actually sometimes a very hard switch to, to flip and actually something that I struggle with mm. sometimes as well because it's very easy for me to write technical literature because it's mm -hmm. it's formulaic whereas the creative stuff and actually infusing some of my personality and flavor into it uh is really challenging at times so i it's a nice personal challenge to to do creative writing and um it's a nice break from you know being the mm. scientist mm. and like i said you do have to think outside the box even as a scientist oh, yeah, sometimes yeah absolutely yeah. well you're that's that's the only way that new ideas are going to be mm thought up or created, yeah. communicated. And when you're saying, here's a problem or, or here's a model. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, again, as a microbiologist, I think a lot about metabolic pathways. So carbon and energy or nutrients and energy moving from one place to another and how they change. And so there are models of how these take place mm -hmm. and many of them are incomplete. And so the idea is, okay, how do we fill in these modest models? How do we make them better? How do we figure out what all of the parts do mm. there has to be some creativity there has to be some like you say thinking outside the box because yeah. if you just say nope i'm stuck this doesn't make sense i'm done yeah. you know you're, you're not going to progress anywhere scientifically so you have to mm. take some chances you have to have some ideas there's certainly going to be some bad ones um, but i mean <laughs> that's what experimentation is for the whole point is yeah. i have a hypothesis i think x is going to happen i do the experiment and it either i mean in the best case scenario it clearly works or clearly doesn't, or more often than not in the lab, something in between happens. And so then you have to sit back and scratch your head and say, well, what does this mean? And so that is getting kind of far away from the, the creative writing part, but that's what I love the most mm. about scientists and being a microbiologist and being a professor is solving those problems, getting the weird result, the one that doesn't make mm. sense, and then asking, well, what if we tried this? And so maybe that little, that, that, that spark of what if we tried this? is bleeding over to, to the fantasy. So in terms of yeah. the magic system or the characters or the interactions, like, well, what if, what if we had two characters and they disagreed on this one point and what would they, how would they see the world or what would they act upon? So those are the types of things that I think where there's a little bit of overlap between the two. Mm -hmm. And would you say in your case, writing fantasy opens a huge field for ideas or concepts which you wouldn't be otherwise able to incorporate in your writing yes absolutely and so i i actually really like this this question or this topic because i think science fiction and fantasy are the best quote-unquote the best genres and so why it is the biggest sandbox it is the biggest canvas so why why is that? Because you can think of examples of, of fantasy where there is incredible action and intrigue. So that takes care of you know kind of espionage thriller types of stories. You can have romance that will break your heart. So that takes care of the romance genre. You can have things where you've got you know isolation 
and loneliness. So that takes care of a lot of kind of Western type themes. Uh, so you can incorporate all of these other genres, but then you can have dragons and magic or laser guns <laughs> and spaceships. And so you can have all of these fantastical elements that you might not see in a conventional romance or a conventional yeah. Western. So uh, again, uh, an example that might be a, a cultural touchstone now is people think of the the TV show, the Mandalorian. So that's mm. a sci-fi show, but it's really kind of a Western. You've got this yeah. desolate planet and you've got Western themes of self-reliance um, and the, the outlaw doing good. And so that's a, a space Western. Mm -hmm. And so I, so that's a, a really good example of you can, but then you've got baby Yoda. So you, you've got a little alien. So <laughs> that yeah. type of, of ability of that's all encompassing yeah. is why I really am passionate about science fiction and fantasy, because when you pick up a science fiction fantasy book, you kind of know what you're going to get, but you're not mm -hmm. quite sure what you're going to get. And so, uh, you know, like we were talking about before, the, the, the races. So there's kind of a dwarf race in my story, and there's kind mm -hmm. of a cat person race in my story. But their abilities or their mm -hmm. personality traits or how they perceive themselves in a world as a culture is very different than if you picked up another book, another fantasy yeah. book that had cat people or dwarves. And so yeah. you can even have similar types of things mm -hmm. and still be very, very different. And so yeah. that's what I love about fantasy and science fiction is that you can have familiar elements, but nothing is really standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. Yeah. And may I ask, do you have a role model as a fantasy author? And uh, a come and a second part of this question would be, do you think that Tolkien is a sort of gold standard for fantasy? Sure. So that's so okay. So this is now we're getting into the, to the tougher questions. Um, so the the easier one first. Who are uh, who is the kind of the, the people that I try to to emulate, or what are the authors mm -hmm. that I really like, whose stories I would love to be compared to, but probably never will. Um, so that I'd say there's three authors that um, really had a huge impact as me growing up as a uh, a reader, and so. I would love to be able to spark the same type of imagination mm -hmm. as these three authors. So when I was a younger person, uh, the first author was Jean Yolen. And in particular, she wrote uh, a series of books called the Pit Dragon Trilogy. And so again, it was my first uh, exposure to science fantasy because it was a series of novels set on a desert world where it was kind of a medieval indentured servant type of, of structure in terms of, of workers, but it was a fantasy or a, a science fiction setting where there was lasers and, and spaceships, mm -hmm. but they were rare. It was basically a backwater planet that was a former penal colony that on occasion got alien visitors, but the main um, economy, the main economy of the planet was dragon fighting. So there are huge lizards, dragons, and so the rearing and fighting of dragons is the main attraction to this planet. It's, it's the story of mm -hmm. a uh, young boy that is a, a bonder. So he's he's not he's like an indentured servant, and he's trying to win his freedom. And so he steals a dragon egg and hatches this dragon in secret and raises it to be a fighter to to win his freedom. And so it's a story about that. And so that idea of mm -hmm. science fantasy, a young protagonist. I was a young person at the time. That was a major uh, influence on me. Was the the Pit Dragon trilogy by Jane Yolen. The second one was when I was in high school was basically all of the uh, Dungeons and Dragons type of stuff mm. published by by TSR. So Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, and, and the two authors were Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Mm. And so um, the idea of 
uh, an ensemble cast mm-hmm. doing a huge deed, an impossible deed, and the different personalities and different um, alternative agendas or secret agendas amongst the characters was very, was very interesting to me. And so that was a second uh, big crop of authors, Margaret Royce, Tracy Hickman. And then actually when I was in graduate school, a friend of mine introduced me to Ian Banks, mm-hmm. who, who was uh, a Scottish writer that wrote uh, huge epic space operas. And in terms of uh, the scale and the vastness and the age of space and the impossible intelligence of super AI starships, that was um, really mind-blowing for me. It was, it was one of the handful of times in my life I can remember reading one of Ian Banks' books, in, in particular, Player of Games, where I would read a chapter and I'd have put it down and just take five minutes just to kind of absorb all of the concepts that he had thrown at me. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, an incredible experience for, for me. And so his name is not one that really pops up enough in terms of talking about the science fiction great writers. Uh, and unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But mm-hmm. I think the entire science fiction catalog of Ian Banks was, was a huge influence in me in terms of, of thinking about scope and mm-hmm. age of things. And so those would be kind of the, the three authors or, or mm-hmm. clusters of authors that I would, would say um, had a huge in- influence on me and, and you know, that I'd try to emulate. Mm-hmm. Uh, your question about is Tolkien the gold standards? I would say not anymore. Mm. I, mm-hmm. I would say not anymore. I, I see people name check him a ton because he was first. Mm-hmm. And he did he did what he did. He was very good. And he was the first to do it. And so that's what people are exposed to first. So I think there's a bit of history mm-hmm. that m- count him as one of the, the greats. And he certainly belongs in that pantheon. But I think that as far as gold standard, I think the the genre has shifted mm-hmm. and evolved over mm-hmm. time. And, and so the the tropes and the style of writing and the types of stories that if you look now at the market, what's really being sold and who mm-hmm. is writing these stories and the types of magic and the types of characters and the types of conflict, the going on a quest to do a righteous thing, mm-hmm. that's not a super common storyline anymore Mm -hmm. uh and and so i I think that is tolkien the gold standard i I think for historical reasons sure he can Mm -hmm. be but i think that there are lots of modern examples that are much more representative of what fantasy readers want now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how would you describe your writing process we often ask our authors that because other authors who listen to a podcast are always interested in how their colleagues do it Sure. Uh, yeah. So, so mine is actually fairly low tech. Uh, and so, um, I don't use any fancy writing program. I just have a, a word processing program and uh, a calendar and, uh, I am 100% plotter. So mm. people talk about being a plotter or a pantser. Uh, I am 100% outliner. I know exactly what the story is going before the start. So I write a fairly detailed outline, mm. which is maybe 10 single space pages. And each uh, paragraph within that outline corresponds to a chapter. So I'll have maybe, you know, 30, 35 paragraphs within that 10 pages. And that corresponds to every chapter within the book. And so I call that outline version zero. 
and then I take version zero and then I make a, you know, I duplicate the file and then I take that version zero and then I take each paragraph mm -hmm. and then flesh that out and expand it into a chapter. And so mm -hmm. I start at the start chapter one and work my way all the way through. I know some authors like to jump to the action or mm -hmm. the conflict or the twist and then backfill the description. Uh, for, for me, I just kind of start and plod my way through, start to finish all the way through. Okay. And then once I complete that, the version number goes up one, and then I let it sit uh -huh. in a drawer for several weeks. I try to give mm -hmm. it some space, some mm -hmm. time to breathe, and then I come back, and then I'll do a round of revision, mm -hmm. and then now we're up to version two. And so I'll do that for the, the number of times where I feel I've put as much polish as I can on myself without mm -hmm. external help. Mm -hmm. Then when, so that, you know, that number between two and X. And so that, you know, we can talk about how many X's there have been for other, for other <laughs> projects. Um, but once we get to version X that uh, I feel I can't do any better myself, mm -hmm. then I give out to beta readers. So these mm -hmm. are uh, colleagues, trusted friends, um, and have them read it and then get feedback. And I'm pretty lucky because the beta readers that I have, they all work on different things. One person is very focused on uh, more copy edit types of things in terms of sentence structure, saying if you phrase the sentence this way or flipped it, it would be more compelling. Mm -hmm. Some uh, beta readers are much more uh, big picture in terms of your major conflict is X, Y, and Z, and these two elements don't work. Or we think this character doesn't work because they're inconsistent, their behavior. In one chapter, they were you know, very helpful. In the next mm -hmm. chapter, they were incredibly grumpy, and there was no reason for that change. So mm -hmm, basically mm -hmm. looking at logical problems. Yeah. So I take all that feedback and then I go through the revision process uh, again. And then when I finally feel that that is as polished as I can make it and beta readers say, you know, I don't want to see it again, then, um, then I feel that it's in a position where I can actually try to uh, submit for, for publication. And so that process is usually quite protracted. And so just as an example for the path from regret that took me to do, to go through everything that I just said, took me two and a half years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And given your writing process, what would be your advice for any other aspiring fantasy author out there? <laughs> Sure. So this, this question gets asked a lot. And so I always have a caveat at the start for my answer. My answer is my day job is as a scientist. I love being a scientist and I do not want to change careers. And so writing for me is a creative outlet. I take it seriously, but I write as a hobby. So I am in no hurry. So mm -hmm. with that caveat, my advice is to be patient and take your time. It's going to take, especially for younger writers, um, if you are trying to crank out a huge volume of work mm -hmm. and you are a younger person, you might need more time to mature or to think about the ideas or the conflicts that you are writing about. Mm -hmm. I got my first rejection letter when I was 11 for a magazine called um, Highlights for Children, which is actually still around. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know what that, rejection letter meant because I was mm -hmm. 11. I got a rejection letter and then I went outside and played. And and so it took me much, much later in life to realize what was wrong with those stories. And mm -hmm. so I got my first publishing contract with this, this book, The Path from Regret in my mid forties. And so I've had 30 plus years to grow and experiences all the ups and downs mm -hmm. in life and, you know, to collect some battle scars and some bumps and bruises and become wiser 
Mm-hmm. And so now some of, and I look back at some of my old, my old stories and I understand what I was trying to say, but I didn't have the life experience mm-hmm. to actually describe it as vividly and as realistically as I could. I had it as a concept, these struggles and having now gone through some of them, I'm in a much better place to communicate those in a story. And so for my advice would be, you know, if you are writing, be, be patient to do well, it will take time. And if something you're writing does not seem to click or, or your, your readers are saying this feels contrived or doesn't seem real, take a step back Mm -hmm. and, you know, let it, let it cook. Uh, Writing for me is a marathon. It's not a a sprint. I will write uh, a story and it's going to take as long as it takes. I try to be diligent and consistent. So that's where the calendar part of my setup comes in word processor calendar. So I keep myself accountable to always be working towards something but I am not going to force a story because I need to meet a deadline or I yeah. need to produce three books in a year to sell yeah. to make a living. Um, as a as it being a hobby, I want to create the book that I am the happiest with because mm-hmm. when at the end of the day, who am I writing for? I am writing for me. Mm-hmm. And I would love to be able to share my my books with an audience and, and with the, the the greater literary community in the world. And I think that would be awesome if, if I could find some random person someday that comes into a bookstore and said, I read your book and it was amazing. That would, that'd be great. But at the end of the day, I'm writing the stories that I want to read. And so mm-hmm. there's a famous quote whose attribution I, I can't remember, but basically the gist of this quote was the, your favorite book hasn't been written yet. So you have to do it yourself. And so when I'm ever writing the stories, uh, I'm writing what are the things that I think are interesting or what are the conflicts and the magic that I want to see. And I guess I'm arrogant enough to think that there's someone else out there in the <laughs> world that, that maybe thinks that's, that's kind of cool too. Uh, so that's the, the the sharing part. So I can write slowly. I can afford to mm. because this is my my hobby. Yeah, yeah. And thank goodness you wrote the book. Well, thank you. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's kind of you to say. yeah. Spend a nice time in your world or in the world of your characters. Absolutely. And that also brings us to the next question. And you have touched a little bit upon it. Your plans. What can we as your readers look forward to? Yes. So, uh, as I mentioned before, I am actually very, very happy to uh, announce that my second publishing contract is signed and my book is being copy edited right now. So, uh, in May... Mm-hmm. of 2026 so you know a scant few months away my <laughs> second book will be published and so uh i'm i'm very excited about it. it is um and so in terms of people asking is your book or are your books a series and so i always get really nervous answering this question uh because i say no they are standalone books in a shared universe or a shared world and so what do i mean by that so the path from regret is when Thorne is in his middle age. Mm -hmm. The book that uh, will be coming out uh, in May is also a story about Thorne, but it is when he is 20. So it is, he is a much younger person. So again, if you, if people really want to argue, it is a prequel. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but, But again, there are shared elements, there's shared locations and a couple of shared characters, but it is, a story that you could read that and be done. Mm-hmm. Just like The Path from Regret, you can read that and be done. But if you want to find Easter eggs between the two, you certainly you certainly could. And so could you read it as a series? 
Yeah, I suppose you could, but mm -hmm. that was never my intent. My intent was to write standalone books where if people read one and were done, that was fine. And they would have an enjoyable experience. They weren't waiting for the next one uh, because it's going to take so long. Again, writing as a hobby, mm. I am not yeah. trying to make a deadline. I don't want people to have a series they're waiting for that you know may or may not ever come. But if it's a, but as, if it's a collection of standalone books in the same universe, they get the same stuff they like mm. with a standalone story. Mm -hmm. And so, that's a long-winded way of saying I've got something similar, but hopefully independent coming in May. And as a reader of the path from regret, I have to say there might be a sequel in there as well, not just a prequel, but also a sequel after having finished the book. Yes. So, so that is correct. So, 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 so yeah, so <laughs> you are absolutely correct. So, so the, the prequel is, is Thorne in his, uh, 20s. And so there is a, a story that is I am outlining now that is Thorn in his 50s sat slash 60s. So taking place after the the path from regret. And so again, the vision with this quote unquote, not series is I want to tell a series of four stories. Mm -hmm. So there's the path from regret, which is mm -hmm. Thorn in his you know 40s. Mm -hmm. There's uh, my uh, next book, uh, which I'm, I'm being cagey about the title because we're still workshopping it, uh, <laughs> the title of the second book that is coming out this May, that's mm -hmm. Thorn in his 20s. Mm -hmm. So that means there's two left. There's going to be a story that I'm outlining with Thorn in his 30s, and then one in his uh, 50s slash 60s. And so that's not to say that Thorn uh, meets some terrible end uh, in his 50s or 60s with that fourth book, but his story will be complete. His mm -hmm tale will be told by the time that fourth story comes. So my mm -hmm. vision is that there will be four books within this not quite a series. Mm -hmm. But yes, there's actually something happening after the mm -hmm. Path from Regret. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot to look forward to then for the readers. <laughs> Splendid. I've, uh, I've had so much fun uh, writing it. And so I, I, again, for me writing uh, if you look at it another way, it's a selfish endeavor because it's it's my hobby. And so I love sitting down and thinking about the magic system and the characters and, you know, the places in the void where they could go or uh, the this, this this power tripod between the military and uh, the merchant guilds and then the magical archive. And what are some ways that I can poke at it yeah. and make it wobble, but maybe not completely fall over because... One thing that I wanted to, to mention about the story is that it's very personal. The stakes mm -hmm. are incredibly personal. So one thing that I personally dislike about uh, fantasy is that oftentimes it's world ending or continent ending. It's it's wars between nations mm -hmm. uh, or peoples. And the consequences are, you know, entire peoples will be wiped out, a genocide type story, or an entire nation will yeah. be subsumed. So a takeover yeah. or you know, some sort of huge military nation conflict. And the protagonists are always princes or kings or some type of ruling class. Uh, that's extremely common. And I don't like it. I, I like stories where the stakes are much more grounded in the day to day. So in the path from regret, the story, the, the, the stakes is really happiness. Mm -hmm. uh, what what is going to make Thorne happy? What is going to make Carleon happy? What is going to make the antagonist happy? Um, and what is the consequence if they do not get what they want? And it's it's, it's they will be unhappy and they will not mm -hmm. live the life they want to live. And so those uh, and so people could could knock the book and say, well, the stakes are 
inconsequential. What, who cares about one man? Um, but for me, those I think are the most interesting because you, it's a more of a character study. How does that person act and work? And so they're not working to save their people or their nation, um, which is our grand designs and they're good designs, but you see that story a lot. I need to work to save my people or my country. Um, whereas in this case, it's Thorin saying, I'm trying to just make it to the next day <laughs> and, and, and not be miserable. How do I do that? And so mm -hmm. I think those types of stories are much more interesting. So the stakes are very different mm -hmm. in, in, in the path from regret than what you might see in other fantasy stories. Mm -hmm. That's true, but nonetheless, fascinating, a great read. Mm -hmm. And for your readers, something to look forward to, to learn more about your vision. A win-win situation, I would call that. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know? Uh, I guess the, the only thing is, is if folks thought uh, some of the things I was talking about were interesting, uh, to check out my author website, which is jgardnerauthor.com. That's got uh, a little biography, so a little bit more about me. It's got the back cover synopsis of the book from The Path from Regret, a bunch of purchasing links so you could buy from wherever you would like, uh, a good read page. So if you wanted to see what other people are saying about the book before you you take a chance, you could see that. Uh, there's also an updates page. I'm very reluctant to call it a blog because I update maybe only once a month. Um, and I focus on the writing process and some events that I'm doing and the progress of the, the books that I'm writing. And so now the posts or the updates that I'm creating now are really about the upcoming book that's coming out in, uh, in, in May. So I'll have much more details, hopefully some cover art coming uh, very, very soon. Mm, something else to look forward to then. Ooh, yeah. goody, <laughs> splendid. Uh, Jeffrey, I will sh thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It was most fascinating. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to, to talk about the book and, uh, you know, get into some of the weeds. I really like that part. It's absolutely a pleasure. And I will join you shortly in the green room. Very good. You did enjoy this episode as much as we did. Then hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you like to support us and buy us a coffee, you can do so via Buy Me Coffee and other platforms. You can find all the necessary links in the description. Until next time.